Welcome back to the interview series on the socioeconomic consequence of disruptive technologies by rethinking economics and now. Today we'll be focusing on the socio-political uh, and economical environment of Europe. We will especially be focusing on how this environment is, is influencing, how these technologies are shaped and regulated. For that, three world-class experts have been so kind as to make time for us today. Firstly with us today is the Jan Coyle. She is the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and co-directs there the Bennett Institute for Public Policy. She's also, uh, she was a professor of economics at the University of Manchester. She specializes in the economics of new technologies and globalization, particularly the measurement of the digital economy and competition in digital markets. Previously, she was the vice chair of the BBC Trust, a member of the Competition Commission, the Migration Advisory Committee and a Natural Capital Committee. She was the author of a number of books in economics, including GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History, and The Weightless World, Strategies for Managing the Digital Economy. Secondly with us today is Andrea Renda. He is an Italian social scientist whose research lies at the crossroads between economics, law, technology, and public policy. He is a senior research fellow and the head of global governance, regulation, innovation, and digital economy at the Center for European Policy Studies. From September 2017, he holds the chair for digital innovation at the College of Europe in Brooks in Belgium. He is also a non-resident fellow at Duke University's Canon Institute for Ethics. He is a member of the high-level European expert group on AI, as well as a member of the International Advisory Board at European Parliament's Science and Technology Options Assessment. Lastly with us today is Charlotte Sticks. She is a technology policy expert with specialization in AI governance. Her PhD research at the Eindhoven University of Technology critically examines ethical, governance, and regulatory considerations around artificial intelligence. She is also a fellow at the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge and an expert to the World Economic uh, Forum's Global Future Council on Neurotechnologies. Most recently, Schlotter was the coordinator of the European Commission's high-level expert group on AI, and she was also awarded as a, uh, as a, uh, for, uh, as a uh, 2020 Forbes 30 under 30 of Europe and a young global shaper by the World Economic Forum. In her spare time, Schlotter runs the bi-monthly European AI newsletter with over 1,900 subscribers. And with that, I would like to move towards the first question to Professor Coyle. Could you tell us more about the digital economy? especially its main divergence from the economic perspective from the traditional non-digital economy. The first thing to say about digital technology is that it's what economists call a general purpose technology, which means it's got wide uses throughout the economy and it affects many different activities and sectors. And of course, we've experienced that, particularly since 2007 with the arrival of 3G and smartphones. And we now, um, particularly this year with the pandemic, um, understand how much digital has transformed our daily lives and we use it all the time. In terms of its economic characteristics, there are some differences. One is that like some previous technologies, there are very high upfront costs and then very low marginal costs of using lots of digital technologies. And so there are these increasing returns to scale. It's been true of other industries in the past, um, but this uh, is an, one of the important economic characteristics. Another is that um, there are what economists call network effects, which means that the more people use the technology, the more you benefit, benefit from it yourself. This was true of telephony, but it's also true of lots of digital applications. And uh, together, these create quite a, um, a unique kind of market dynamic, um, winner-takes-all dynamics, um, in that 
you've got to cover the upfront costs. So uh, companies that enter the market are going to make losses for a long period and they need that funding. They need a large market um, to help them cover their initial costs. And they, re they reach a critical mass at some point when the market tips towards them. And so in many of digital markets, you find uh, one or two dominant players. And this is something that's obviously come to the fore recently with lots of countries and the European Union just this week um, publishing new uh, regulatory and competition approaches to digital markets because um, I think we have steadily realised the um, importance of them in our lives and the fact that we are very dependent on these markets. And I think there was a great example of this dependence and therefore vulnerability um, with some of the hacking that occurred just recently of US government websites. And this was nothing to do with the underlying technology. It wasn't to do with internet security. It was to do with um, economic concentration. So on the same day, Google went down and the US government got, got hacked. And the vulnerability was about the market concentration rather than anything to do with the technology. And so we're at a point now where a lot of um, governments and authorities are starting to think very hard about what the implications of these technologies have been. On the one hand, like any big te technological advance, you've got the potential for improvements in productivity and people's quality of life. And on the other hand, because of the um, special characteristics, um, quite distinctive vulnerabilities in our economies and societies as well. That's very, very fascinating. I'm sure we'll move also very to the regulation aspect of this. But for, before we do that, I was wondering, could you tell us, uh, we often see technology is often framed as something inevitable that just happens to us. But I've seen, heard you argue that it is actually a social uh, a construct by its social political environment, and therefore we can influence how it's shaped. Could you expand on that? Sure. Um, let me give some examples. Um, I talked about the need for digital companies to um, raise enough funding to cover their losses initially. This is one of the reasons why the giant digital companies are US or Chinese. They've got very large domestic markets um, that they can expand into, but also they've had the funding to cover those losses because of the structure of their financial sectors. And that's been harder in Europe, so Europe doesn't have um, the same dominance in any of these markets. Another example is about data. And there's a lot of debate now, particularly about personal data and understanding the implications of big digital companies, taking a lot of individuals' um, data about their activities and transactions and using that to um, sell new services or to target advertising. And that's possible because there's been a presumption that data is something that can and should be owned, and it's owned by the companies that are collecting and structuring it. And that's, that's a, a presumption that has sort of come about by chance, really, and because of the structure of, um, of legal ownership. But that's something that could be legislated. We could legislate for an entirely different data economy that was not about ownership and uh, transactions in the market, but about um, terms of access and who has permission to access and use different types of data which is much more um, linked to Eleanor Ostrom's view about how you would organize the collective use and distribution of resources. If you think back to previous episodes of major technological changes, um, they've had very different outcomes. There's a lot of debate now in economics and policy communities about whether automation will accelerate and whether it will lead to a lot of job losses and inequality. 
if you look back at previous waves of technological change and compare, compare and contrast them, the Industrial Revolution and the 1950s and 60s, they both saw a lot of automation, a lot of change in the labor market and the kinds of jobs that people, people did. But the 50s and 60s saw increasing employment and reducing income inequality. And um, that was shaped by the, uh, the social and economic context of the time and, and the fact that it was imperative after the sacrifices populations had made during the Second World War to ensure that uh, those technologies delivered wide benefits for society. So then seeing how this, the importance of such a social political environment, uh, Ms. Sticks, could you tell us more about what this environment looks like within the European Union? Sure. Um, I mean, I think for the European Union, it's really important to also mention that recently in the Digital Markets Act, um, the European Commission has actually called for fines for up to 10% of the annual um, global turnover for online gatekeepers. So those are the really big um, tech giants, you know, the ones that do have a lot of the data, that do manage a lot of the access and what can be done with our data. Um, I think what's also important to notice, you know, in terms of um, future technologies, emerging technologies, Europe has had quite a leading position with the GDPR in terms of how we think about of these things and how internationally different actors look towards Europe and sort of build on the work that Europe has done in this field. You know, it, it is lacking sometimes in, you know, industrial, um, how to say that, in startups and SMEs, that is a criticism that is valid and that is being tackled. But Europe has really had leadership position in terms of ensuring that technology is used and deployed for the citizens and for the individual and empowering and enabling those individuals to really, you know, look towards what happens with the data, what happens with the technologies they use and ensure that they are protected. Um, I think there is also something important to mention that oftentimes you have these people that would say that Europe is regulating itself into irrelevance, which, I mean, it is it is a valid criticism depending on where you come from, but with the recent white paper on AI, you see that Europe has really tried to set the bar very high again for consumer protection, for ensuring that individuals have access to so-called trustworthy human-centric artificial intelligence, which is a key element in the future and hopefully puts Europe in a leadership position. Could you expand more on the environment, the, how they're tackling the weaknesses is to Claire and Alice? For sure. Um, I mean, Claire is one of the sort of thriving ecosystems, networks, academic networks in Europe. And they have done a lot of work also proposing their Lighthouse Center in Artificial Intelligence, which would be a sort of CERN for AI, where part of the idea is that Europe has great research institutions. That's a fact. Unfortunately, our retention rate isn't as good as it could be. So, you know, having a really ambitious project, a sort of moonshot project, would potentially attract not only researchers that have been trained in Europe and are European, but also those from other countries. And it would also enable and empower industry players to potentially you know, harness European researchers from that center 
But you also have a couple of other networks and, and tools. So you have the public-private partnerships, you have the coordinated plan on AI, which is sort of at a member state level, where various countries collaborate to counteract fragmentation in Europe. I mean, we have to remember that the European Union isn't one country. Um, so to sort of ensure that really everything is pulled together and that there are strategies across countries' borders, you have the digital innovation hub networks, where again, there is a really big effort and a push to ensure that the industry is working with governments, with academics and researchers to think about how to increase the to increase the access to this technology, to increase funding, but also to enable the public and other actors to really engage with these technologies in the future. And that's something that doesn't quite exist in this formal variation um, in other countries that are comparable. And what I was quite curious about is that Europe is often portrayed as far less of a world player in AI than the United States or in China. But uh, I do think that if I, for instance, looked at you, what you've written, it does show that Europe is actually quite a player. Could you expand on Europe's position in AI and how you expect this to develop? Sure. I mean, as I said before, I think it really depends on your angle and where, how you weigh what you think is important. So if you weigh um, the number of startups and the sort of funding for startups as really important and key to AI progress, then that might give a completely different result than if you weigh, as I've said before, efforts towards AI regulation, standardization, certification and consumer protection. Now, one of those things is quite sexy, the other one might not be as sexy. That doesn't mean that it isn't really important, it doesn't mean that it's vital, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't give other countries and players a sort of direction that is being followed internationally. When you look at, um, for example, what the United States is currently looking at. So it might not be the most ideal in the shape and form that the regulation regulatory framework is in right now, but it is still a guiding structure for other countries on what they actually want to do or not to do. And I think that in and of itself is a leadership position. It might not be the leadership position, but that really does depend on how, how you weigh what is important to you. Now, you could also say that the European Union is putting in a lot of effort on ensuring an ecosystem of excellence, which you know looks at technical capabilities, which looks at funding for artificial intelligence. Because of course, if you regulate, you need an equal um, technological you know, pool to regulate. And it's important to enable that pool and to really ensure that the industry is thriving as well. So I think Europe has a really good chance here to have a leadership position in ethical, in trustworthy artificial intelligence, um, which I'm sure that Andrea will expand on. And it is important to not undervalue that and underplay that just because it is maybe not as sexy or cool. And I say this on purpose, than having really hotshot startups and really big industry players. 
I think that's very, very interesting. And but then I actually also want to move to Hypervisor then. I was really curious, how exactly are we regulating these technologies and how do you see this? Well, all digital technologies, uh, of, of course, they are a big uh, spectrum of, of solutions and uh, uh, incorporating hardware, software and, uh, and various uh, uh, di different solutions applied in different sectors. So there's no single regulatory framework, obviously, in Europe that uh, encompasses all of them. And indeed, for a long time, the regulatory framework has been very light-handed in Europe, just as it has been in many other parts of the world. We have to remember that when the internet started permeating our lives, like uh, uh, in the early 90s in particular, uh, concrete intentional choices were made not to regulate the internet and to leave the baby grow up, uh, let's say, and maybe spoil the baby a little bit uh, with the lack of regulation uh, in the uh, uh, belief that this would lead uh, uh, to the so-called permissionless innovation and a very ecumenical development, let's say, of the internet where there would be some value uh, for, for uh, each and every player, each and every user from this uh, 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 fantastic ecosystem system nurtured by the effects and the and the phenomena in economics as well that Diane was mentioning before uh, network externalities uh, uh, potential uh, um, uh, sequences of one generation monopolists so high market contestability very turbulent uh, but also very dynamic and creative environment now obviously we've seen that things have not exactly gone in that direction meaning that after a first if you wish very creative uh, season in which being a a one generation monopolist did not necessarily mean having a guarantee of remaining uh, uh, the one that rides the wave uh, in the subsequent generation. It's a sort of early big bang, if you wish, uh, uh, the uh, dynamic environment. The situation is very much crystallized along uh, uh, centripetal forces that have generated uh, uh, four, five, six large players that accumulate and capture most of the value that is being generated on the internet. And this is something that happens in unregulated environments in most cases because uh, the uh, um, overabundance of the information on the internet is also and the modularity of the products that are uh, uh, largely uh, consumed and distributed uh, over the internet has generated also a what if you want to go back to the early days of economics and behavioral science, for example, what Herbert Simon would have defined a situation in which a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a situation in which a few players that have captured the attention of the end users uh, uh, can monetize that attention in various ways. So this, we know where this has led uh, in many respects, uh, uh, inequality in many markets. So see what has happened in the U United States this year uh, in terms of the economic security of those jobs, right? Uh, from 300,000 people on unemployment subsidies uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to 30 million three weeks after that. Uh, so it's just to give you an idea of what maybe some economists would uh, would declare uh, and would describe as being the marvelous uh, uh, flexibility and uh, of the of the U.S. labor market. I'd rather would define it as a lack of economic security and the potentially over time a lack of uh, social cohesion. Uh, and that is also brings me to um, uh, maybe a comment that is more general uh, uh, with respect to the to the questions and the uh, that you have formulated so far in the answers you've gotten, which I very much agree with, of course, um, is the fact that. Uh, um, technology is a means, 
Um, and that's as such, it is not regulated uh, at EU level, meaning re regulation tends to be technology neutral, meaning what you regulate is the uh, products and the services that use different types of technologies over time, with some exceptions that I'm about to uh, spell out uh, that are more recent, where we start already building more technology-specific regulation. Um, technology is a means, so we should treat it as a means. If we think that artificial intelligence is an end, and I come to my experience in the high-level expert group on AI. On the first day, the European Commission asked me and the other 51 uh, colleagues there, um, we want to become more competitive in AI. And let me be pro provocative here a little bit. Who cares, right? Um, I care about meeting the sustainable development goals. If I can do this with AI, let there be AI. <laughs> if I can do this without AI, well, that's then uh, let's see what AI does. Uh, but if AI, if uh, uh, really aiming at becoming competitive in AI means uh, having a um, perhaps a an exaggerated approach towards filling factories with robots and without creating a meaningful complementarity between artificial intelligence and human beings, uh, and maybe it means that we will not meet our sustainable development goal eight of achieving full and decent employment for everybody. Well, that is, I think, a very distorted way of looking at public policy. So I'd rather have a different um, uh, optic towards uh, regulating technology where I think that my vision, well, I, I base my uh, my regulation on the principles, which are, in the case of the EU, very much nested in the treaties and in what we call the European Union values, although we would have we would need to have another interview about what these are uh, in particular. And and we also are clear about, clear about the, the goals, the vision that we want to realize in the medium term. And then we deploy our technology policy in that respect. Okay, now um, just let me uh, wrap up on this. Uh, and I think in the high level expert group, we have then taken at least partly that direction of trying to treat technology as a means. So not sacrificing our uh, medium term uh, prosperity on the, and, and sustainable development on the altar of uh, um, uh, digital technologies. Um, and, and then over time, I think, um, to close the loop that I've opened in my answer, uh, the largely unregulated environment that it started with, I don't know, the WIPO Treaty in 1996, the, the Telecommunications Act or the Communications Decency Act in the United States, the Information Society Directive, the e-commerce directive at the European Union level in the early 2000s, 2000 and 2001, that loop is now being closed because the European Union, maybe before the United States, has realized maybe through competition cases first, and then later through regulatory uh, attempts, that uh, the time was ripe to start uh, rebalancing the power uh, that has emerged through those centripetal forces that I was describing before, and then starting to experiment first with antitrust laws, and then realizing over time that maybe antitrust is not enough, and then starting to look into what member states have had for a long time, rules on superior bargaining power, rules of an, on abuse of economic dependency, and bringing that, and them back into the EU uh, level uh, competition policy and related regulatory um, interventions to build what today we call the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, but before them, the platform to business regulations. In all this, and sorry, Kun, you already know that I, I know you want to ask another question, so I'll stop in 30 seconds. Uh, in all this, the one-off uh, attempt that has been a sort of game changer, uh, albeit imperfect in this process, is certainly the GDPR. So an attempt to 
introduce in this largely unregulated environment with uh, also social norms and uh, self-regulated behaviors that are very different from what was happening in the real world, in this environment, introduction of a non-negotiable set of rules, uh, maybe not fully complied with, maybe not having the impact one was expecting in the very beginning, but still an assertive uh, decision to uh, make something non-negotiable, for example, or uh, rigidly protected, which is uh, personal data, has been a game changer in terms of turning the tide towards understanding, and this is something that is shared in the US, in the EU, and in most other parts of the world, think about Japan or other countries, that the internet has to be regulated and digital technology has to be regulated. I think it gives a beautiful overview on many topics, including the environment and how this has been historically shaped in the European Union. Thank you for that. And I was also very curious if you could shortly expand on what exactly have been the recommendations of the high-level expert group on AI. Could you tell us more about the ethics guidelines on trustworthy AI and the investment recommendations on trustworthy AI? Yeah. Um, so the high-level expert group was given two mandates basically uh two products to develop one was this ethics guidelines on, tr on trustworthy well ethics guidelines on artificial intelligence actually the original mandate um and that has been i think the most uh, fruitful elaboration of the high-level expert group well, because we did two things uh, uh cutting a very long story short um, a subset of the group uh, um, uh, in particular the academics in the group uh, have given uh, a, a precise direction to the work of the high-level expert group uh, without replicating the dozens and dozens of ethical principles that are already available from bioethics to artificial intelligence everywhere around the world, private sector, public sector, international organizations, governments, and so on. We have decided to define uh, um, the ethically aligned AI in a broader way as trustworthy AI, but with a way, in, in a way that would have concrete um, reference to the legal system. So uh, initially, the, the first thing that we said is trustworthy AI uh, has to be legally compliant, uh, even before we start talking about ethics, because laws are there and we know how fluid and, and, uh, and difficult to grasp is the, the digital subject matter. Uh, it is far from uh, um, established that all the digital technologies out there easily comply with all the legal rules that we have in place. So legally compliant from GDPR onwards, obviously, ethically aligned, and then we define four key principles uh, um, of um, ethical and responsible development of AI, which go from the pr uh, protection of human autonomy and agency to the prevention of, of harm, fairness, explicability. But we did also, and, and then we, we, show, we, we added a third pillar, which is the, the robustness of AI. So trustworthy AI is also AI that has gone through some process in an ongoing governance, not just an example process, and an ongoing governance that guarantees that best efforts are made uh, to uh, make this AI product resilient and robust towards external attacks, right? Within the ethical pillar, we have done something that, uh, in my opinion, is uh, a little bit of a game changer compared to the, to the uh, proliferation of ethical principles that are out there. We have tried to convert those principles into requirements and the requirements into concrete questions. So to, to guide AI developers and, uh, and designer and, develop, and uh, developers and deployers uh, through a process in, in a way that would enable them to self-assess at least, and perhaps in the future to be assessed as regards their alignment with uh, good practices in trustworthy AI. Now, this is the basis uh, for the white paper on AI that the European Commission has uh, presented uh, in February for what concerns the ecosystem of trust. 
and will be the basis for the forthcoming, forthcoming uh, uh, regulation on AI that will be presented in the first quarter next year. Um, although there are a number of problems there that if we can elaborate on, but uh, obviously only we, if we have time. Uh, but still, the, the underlying DNA and uh, overall texture of that um, uh, regulatory intervention is, uh, is in that uh, initial input. The second is a set of recommendations for, for policy which are oriented towards data, towards the role of the public sector, towards skills, towards infrastructure. And then they are very broad. I think they have been uh, a little bit more diluted in the process of um, uh, trying to get agreement between such a diverse group. Um, overall, I think I have mixed feelings with respect to the experience of the high level expert group. I would save as a flag that we have been able to put the um, ethics guidelines on trustworthy AI as being something that at least has made a little step forward in the direction of something that is a huge castle, uh, the regulatory framework for AI that we still largely need to build. Uh, I fully agree with you. And I was wondering, uh, going back to Professor Coyle, uh, how, what is your perspective on the regulation of disruptive technologies? And it's especially in the context of the earlier comments you made on the digital economy and also the comments by Ms. Stix and Professor Zenda. And could you tell us more about especially the difficulties uh, for competition policy in a digital economy? What are its unique uh, difficulties? Well, I, there are several things I'd want to say about that. Um, first of all, Traditionally, competition policy hasn't had to think as much about the dynamics of markets as it does in these digital markets. Um, and that's because, as Andrea was saying, the context now is that you're trying to make sure there's competition for the markets and new entrants can get in, even if they then become dominant for a while, in the way that Facebook um, overtook MySpace or other browsers overtook Internet Explorer. Um, so there's a need to kind of reshape competition policy to think in that way, um, complicated by the fact that a lot of the big companies that we might worry about operate in many different markets. In a normal uh, market inquiry or merger inquiry, you, you define a particular market that you're looking at. It's much harder when you're uh, thinking about one of these very large companies that's got lots of different activities and a very complex ecosystem, as it's called, of people supplying to the platform, people using the platform, moving into different markets um, uh, with its user base. Um, the hard thing though, I think, is, is thinking forward. There's a lot of debate now about whether Facebook should ever have been allowed to buy Instagram. At the time, nobody was at all concerned about it because Instagram was very small. Was there anything competition authorities could have looked at at the time to give them a clue? Well, one possibility is you would look at the price that Facebook was willing to pay for Instagram. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's a very large sum of money for a tiny company, and that was a clue. And then the other is that you need to look at much more closely at the um, board documents and the strategy documents that competition authorities have access to. So it changes the way that you think about competition policy and apply it. Um, but then the other thing is this whole question about regulation that Charlotte and Andrea have been talking about, and I'd like to build on that. We've had this debate for a long time framed by business actually that says regulation is bad. It, um, it, it uh, clogs up the economy, it stops companies being as productive as they might be. Sure, there has to be some, but it's generally a bad thing and we want to avoid it. And there was a regulatory um, free for all really for digital companies right back in the 1990s. But you can also think about regulations as standards. And um, you know, an example might be setting the voltage for electricity which was about safety, 
but also about setting a standard which created a level playing field, gave um, all the businesses in the market um, a, a, a clear set of standards that they would all work to and, and it would grow the market. Another example would be GSM and mobile technology, a standard set by Europe, which you could also see as uh, a burden on companies that were not using that technology originally. So regulations, set standards, uh, uh, shapes, um, uh, level playing field markets, makes it possible for them to grow. And um, there's also now a lot of discussion about what kinds of regulation do we need in these digital domains, um, which will range from mandatory codes of conduct uh, um, to particular technological standards and interoperability of data and, and so on. And I would point out that we wouldn't be having this debate about standards and ethics if companies had been behaving differently. And so part of what's happening now is a response to the behaviours. I don't think it's all about ethics, though. Ethics are really important, but being an economist, I would say incentives are important too. And a lot of, you know, it's not that a lot of AI engineers and data scientists are bad people. They're not evil people, but they're operating in a system with very powerful incentives that shapes what they do. Um, so public service procurement is an area I think is going to be interesting to think about. When governments are buying technologies in public-private partnerships or just to deliver public services, they need to think really carefully about what they put in those contracts. So at a minimum, data access. The data does not belong to the company that's providing the technology as a con a, a, through a contract. It belongs to the public. I think it would also be really interesting to think about public service AI and the public sector itself developing um, AI applications um, which are because they're different business models than the kinds that operate in the private sector will lead to very different kinds of behavior and i think it'd be very healthy to have those uh, those comparisons so an example might be smart cities or transportation or health where if um, public authorities can um, use their data respecting people's privacy and um, data, data security obviously but use that to deliver benefit for people in general, then that is a form of competition with the private sector that will change the behavior of the private sector. Um, the other, the final point I'll make about this is that we tend to have quite generalized debates about AI, about data. Actually, you need to get much more specific because it's different in different sectors. A lot of attention focuses on the advertising driven models, the, the big tech giants and our personal data. There's a lot of other types of data as well. And we need to think about how the value from those gets distributed. One of my favorite examples is John Deere, the tractor manufacturer, um, which has uh, provided lots of sophisticated um, IT equipment and software in the cab cabins of tractors. And farmers get a lot of useful information from that about the soil and the weather conditions and so on. But John Deere, um, encloses that data for itself and is creating new software and new services to sell, which are higher profit margin than selling tractors. And so it's capturing that kind of value uh, rather than sharing that with the farmers. And actually, in that case, is even trying to use US courts to forbid farmers to mend their own tractors on the grounds that they have copyright over the software in, in the cabins. Um, and so that's an, another kind of area that's not about personal data. And we need to think much more about in, uh, the Internet of Things um, and particularly in Europe where um, there's a, 
you know, industrial advantage in that kind of technology. So I think that's a very, very interesting comprehensive answer on the difficulties related to this. And I was also very curious because you've also been quite critical on uh, how this relates to the way we teach economics, because economics, especially in its basics models, it's quite negative in regulation. Its assumptions say markets are perfectly competitive and uh, work and such. So I was wondering, how, and you also have, have talked about how these assumptions influence policymakers and economic experts in the society. So could you expand on those uh, subjects? I've been very involved in trying to change the economics curriculum um, over the past few years. And um, it's, it's driven by an experience of policymakers who learned their economics some decades ago, and it was very much shaped as by this perfect market um, benchmark. And um, so always starting from the position that generally the markets are the best way to organize things, um, but you might think about exceptions, you might think about market failures. And although I think that's a really useful intellectual framework for testing um, how you might make um, a more efficient use of resources, um, I don't think it's the right place to start in the modern economy, where things like increasing returns to scale, uh, market power, um, uh, power structures in the labor market, are there's such obviously an important empirical phenomena that you ought to be starting there. And of course, you can then use the underlying economic theory to um, as a kind of thought experiment or, or to test your ideas, but you should be starting in a different place. And um, so I, I hope that I think that's changing. Um, there's huge student interest in anything about digital economics for the obvious reason that it's really affecting our lives in, in a big way. And um, so, I, so I, I do detect change. I, I wish there was more economic research going on in this area. I mean, obviously there's some fantastic e academics, um, but it's been a bit slow. I started writing about digital technologies in the 1990s. We've had the internet uh, widely available since at least the mid 1990s. And it's really only just now that you're seeing a huge growth in the amount of economic research being done on competition in digital markets. And I, I regret that it's been so slow. We should, we, should be, we should be further ahead than we are in terms of both the analysis and the data, the understand, empirical understanding. I saw Professor Renda quite not. Could you also expand on how you see this? Well, I was nodding on, uh, first of all, on Diane's example of John Deere, because I think it's very telling of what is happening in a number of markets uh, and what has already happened in a number of markets uh, in particular uh, and, and economic sectors, in particular in the United States, uh, where farmers indeed need to purchase access to data coming from their own land. And uh, this is something that uh, uh, transforms them into slaves to, to uh, those players that are able to capture the value from uh, the, the real economy activity that they perform. Indeed, this is ex exactly the um, concern that has uh, led, uh, the way I interpret it at least, the European Commission to launch this uh, data strategy uh, based on two main pillars. One is the it's a sort of foresight. Um, it's a vision of the uh, upcoming evolution of digital technologies, in particular from the centrality of the cloud as the place where we store data to more distributed, uh, uh, even uh, ultimately decentralized architectures where not only we store the data more locally, we uh, mm, avoid sharing the data widely and uh, we apply artificial intelligence in a more, at a more local level. One example, autonomous vehicles, cannot afford 
shipping the information to the cloud whenever a decision has to be made and then receiving it back um, uh, after the cloud, the, the cloud-based artificial intelligence has elaborated that information. This creates latency, creates connectivity costs, it creates um, uh, security problems because everything that travels long distances is potentially exposed to attacks. Um, in principle, ideally, uh, we would have a big brain inside the autonomous car. But at current technology, a big brain autonomous and able to fully process all the information in an autonomous car means a half hour battery uh, duration, right? So uh, technology advances. Currently, we are at the, at the situation in which uh, a lot of artificial intelligence and data storage uh, can be put in what we call the edge. It's an intermediate layer between the things, the connected things, and the cloud. And edge cloud architectures are much more, um, let's say, prone to uh, um, data management by real economy players, car manufacturers, farmers, energy companies. And if you create a, a governance and a legal framework that uh, uh, it is conducive to such a uh, share, sharing of data between uh, the, the players and the producers that populate those sectors, you might create the preconditions for uh, their stronger bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis the tech giants and a bit of a rebalancing of this value that has been captured by just a fistful of players so far. So that is a very acrobatic attempt. But the Data Governance Act, the Data Act next year, the potential scaling up of Gaia-X uh, as a pan-European project with a federated cloud environment is, uh, is resting on this idea. And a second idea, which I think is very interesting for economists and people that uh, um, uh, study social sciences and decision sciences more gener generally. Um, the idea that maybe it's finally Larry Lessig's time Meaning, uh, Larry Lessig in, in the mid-90s uh, and late-90s uh, wrote about the, the, the prevalence of code as, uh, rather than law as being the determinant of what is possible in the internet environment. Well, uh, the attempts through Gaia-X and data spaces of the European Commission can be interpreted as a way to translate legal codes into software codes. Meaning, being part of Gaia-X means, in principle, we we'll see the realization in practice, um, uh, um, committing to compliance with GDPR by design and committing with the, uh, some forms of data interoperability uh, by design and perhaps implementing uh, um, uh, protocols for use and control over data by design. So we're actually thinking, you know, the, the, the normative power of Europe that we've been thinking and that Charlotte was mentioning before, you know, the idea that there's a Brussels effect or that Europe can be a standard setter also for digital technologies around the world. In my opinion, it's chiefly dependent at this moment on Europe's ability to trans to create an environment in which it governs technology also by technology, not only by legal rules and courts and, uh, and uh, regulatory agencies. And that I think is uh, uh, an enormous area for economists, for um, uh, interdisciplinary social scientists uh, uh, to study at the moment. And it really uh, increases and, and strengthens, if you wish, the muscles of the, of the economist, if the economist is willing to venture into, this, uh, into, into alternative forms of governance, uh, which come from uh, a long tradition in economics, obviously, and their inter interaction with technology. It's very, very fascinating. Uh, Ms. Sticks, could you expand on that as also from the technical perspective and perhaps if you also have comments on the economic perspective? Um, sure. I mean, so the sort of products that we produce and deploy in Europe and our competitiveness or the competitiveness of our industry is intrinsically linked to 
ethical and technical, as you said, considerations. And I mean, this has been mentioned before by Diane. I think ethics is not, you know, the be-all, end-all, but ideally ethics and technical considerations should merge and align, right? And in Europe, they do that. And that is a really important direction to point out. And in the white paper, which follows the ethics guidelines, the seven key requirements um, from the high-level expert group that Andrea has mentioned, in the white paper that has been translated into technical obligations or legislative obligations for high-risk AI systems, which is equally grounded in technical requirements. So you have requirements for training data. So to ensure that reasonable measures have been taken, that outcomes don't um, lead to prohibited discrimination, data record keeping, documentation, programming and training, information provided, robustness and accuracy so uh, to ensure how a system can adequately deal with errors in the life cycle or um, through attacks and human oversight and i think those sort of mixtures really do put europe in a unique position um, in comparison to other um, governments um, internationally speaking and it also could empower european industry so Yes, there is a Brussels effect, but it could actually also lead to novel innovation, quite frankly. Um, so the testing and experimentation facilities that will eventually need to be built in order to ensure adherence to these ethical slash technical um, obligations that ensure that you adhere to the relevant legal framework will set completely new structures as to what products that come onto the European market will look like. And that can encourage innovation because a lot of these considerations are actually forward looking and they address both technical and um, societal problems. So if you think about the long term effect of AI systems on um, the climate, yes, it is often touted as, you know, being able to tackle climate change, but it is also a massive contributor to worsening climate change. So if you think about, for example, putting this as one of the technical obligations to address topics such as these, you could encourage the European industry to focus on energy efficient learning, which might put Europe into a different position, a uh, different position on a global um, scale. And as Andrea has mentioned, you know, Europe does have the data strategy, it does think about edge computing, Gaia-X is, an initiative across different member states. And there is value to capture there. Um, and as Diane said, you know, with the example with the um, farmers, that is a really big problem that Europe is also addressing and trying to preemptively tackle. So it is suggesting to open these forms of environmental data in order to harness them for the individuals and for the public sector and so that they are not you know resold for purposes or for groups of people that should have access to these things in first place so i think europe is really going into a lot of different directions here trying to mix and merge competitiveness with ethics with technical considerations under the helmet of pushing the ecosystem that we have from an industry perspective and the ecosystem we're creating from legislative perspective. 
Fascinating. Professor Coyle, would you care to expand on uh, Professor Randa's and Mystic's comments? I think you're still mute. Sorry. It's the phrase of 2020, you're still on mute. Um, the thing that struck me actually listening to Andrea and Charlotte is um, I, I completely agree that there is uh, a real opportunity for Europe here, not just to shape outcomes in Europe, but to shape them globally and to have a leadership role in setting standards and providing models. The thing that struck me though, is the need for um, a, an interdisciplinary approach. And this applies to academics working on these things as much as it does to policymakers. You need computer scientists, obviously, because you need great technical know-how to uh, set standards, regulate effectively, deliver value for people. Uh, economists, lawyers, um, deeply involved in competition policy and writing regulations. You also need um, to involve politics because uh, these changes in our society that are coming about, they need to have legitimacy. And we know we're in a context of great polarization in lots of countries inequalities being exposed and broadened by the pandemic and the economic crisis. And it's going to be really important because the technology will drive significant social change to have political legitimacy and accountability. And then also social psychologists, behavioral psychologists, because this is all about how people, how people behave. Uh, if you think back to the industrial revolution, uh, we tend to talk about something like the railways as changing transportation, which obviously it did, but it also drove urbanization because food could be grown um, uh, outside cities and brought into cities. And so the population that could be sustained in one urban, urban center was much bigger. And that's been a huge change in social, political and economic life through the, the 20th century. And that's the kind of scale of eventual impact on our societies that we're talking about with any general purpose technology like digital and AI. And, and so fundamentally, although I think what we've been talking about is important, the really important thing is, um, is the legitimacy of the changes and ensuring that these technologies deliver benefits for everybody and not just making a few people very rich indeed. Focusing on the economic curriculum, uh, you mentioned the importance of this interdisciplinary, and I think we see this also not in this interview, but also in the other interviews in this series. And I was wondering, how, what should we exactly then change in the economic curriculum? And also, should we include more pluralism? Should we include more uh, real-world perspectives? Should we include more interdisciplinary? How do you see this? Well, the example I point to is the is the core um, the core economics textbook, The Economy, which I was one of the co-authors of, and um, uh, I think it does take this much more empirically founded approach and incorporates things like power dynamics and inequality and distribution right at the heart of the curriculum. Um, I think it's it is important to understand older debates in economics. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that, like some of the humanities, economics is always about contesting sets of views and values. It's both. Obviously, we all bring our values to these questions. And it, it has been a mistake in economics to say that you can separate the normative and the positive you, the values, choices and, and the empirical evidence. I don't think you can separate them. But at the same time, I think it's really important that as economists, we 
um, try to be as impartial as, as possible, looking at evidence and bringing empirical evidence to bear on these social problems. So it's an uncomfortable middle position, but I'm not an advocate of complete pluralism in the curriculum. That's interesting. Uh, Ms. Sticks, how do you think we should include in the economics curricula what will be most important from a policy perspective and perhaps also an economics perspective? I mean, I think I can just echo what has been said so far. I think in all fields, not just exclusively economics, if you start talking about emerging technologies, it is really important to include a lot of different fields working on this. And coming back to the earlier point, I think particularly technical researchers, it's important to understand what you are looking at and the actual capabilities of this technology, not as it is now when it's already on the market, but what it can do in two or three years. You really do need to speak to those researchers doing their PhDs right now on these topics in order to know what is the cutting edge and well, because these technologies shape the economic um, markets so much and they shape government's decisions so much and so quickly that you almost need to have an anticipatory view and you can only have this anticipatory view if you don't react. But if you sort of already understand what the next steps and what the timelines for technological development will be. And now that doesn't mean you need to become a technical expert by no means is that, um, well, it might be possible, but I don't think it is required. But it does mean that you do need to engage with those people that are working on these technologies right now, because otherwise the cycles are becoming too quick and you can lose track really quickly. And it does shape your research or your proposals in your economic work. And then as a closing question before we move to final statements, Professor Renda, how do you see this in light of Professor Coyle's and Ms. Tick's comments? Well, I, um, I agree with, with both of them. Um, I'll bring in a little bit of personal experience as well uh, in trying to encourage students of economics today to really listen to what their teachers have to say, but at the same time, develop their own intellectual path, uh, path uh, independently and in a multidisciplinary way as much as possible. Uh, I studied economics. I specialized initially in a, in a subject called economic analysis of law or law and economics, which was heavily dominated by the Chicago school and neoclassical law and econo neoclassical economics behind um, heavy use of uh, very standard cost benefit analysis. So the translation of this into an approach to competition law, which I would say was uh, uh, almost minimalistic. Uh, and uh, I have navigated through those waters uh, by trying to stick to my own understanding and my own beliefs, which were very skeptical. And <laughs> I was very skeptical of many of those principles. And I kept applying this, and I still apply this. When well, today, for example, we, we uh, um, apply economics in public policy in a way that still uses uh, maybe very standard tools like cost-benefit analysis that uh, are in most, most cases uh, um, um, uh, unrelated or disrespectful in some cases of uh, uh, governance, of uh, distributional impacts, and stick to something that in my opinion is one of the, of the key problems, but has been one of the key distinctive traits of economics over the years, uh, which we call methodological individualism. In economics, largely, we still um, un un analyze 
people's utility or happiness in a way that is completely unrelated to what happens in the surrounding or what others have. So the relative dimension of that. And in this, I think it's, a, uh, as made economics, a, a science that uh, um, uh, princes and policymakers looked at as a rocket science, which is obviously not. Uh, and so it has determined part of the popularity of economics over time, but at the same time, it's a huge limit in this, uh, uh, in this uh, social science and uh, something that calls for uh, contamination in the positive sense uh, with, uh, with many, many other social sciences today. So in principle, uh, I would ask students today and I would ask the ones that develop curricula in economics to try and depart at least partially from uh, what we normally uh, have, especially in textbooks, uh, uh, microeconomics books, uh, such as uh, um, uh, indifference curves or things like uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the utility functions and what we immediately start learning very, very soon in the uh, economics 101, which is uh, um, the fact that uh, people's happiness and utility can easily be proxied by income. And that is uh, something that, in my opinion, has created disasters in the application of economic policies in developed and developing countries around the world. Oh, I'd love to expand on that, but we're already quite a bit on time. So uh, for closing statements, uh, Professor Cole, perhaps also in light of what Professor Renda just said, if there's one thing you could say to students in economics watching this today and related to the topics we also discussed today, what would that be? My one piece of advice would be um, about the kinds of questions that you pursue in your career, uh, in your studies and your subsequent career, wherever that is. There are very strong incentives in life to stick to small problems, um, you know, fix a particular uh, detailed policy issue or uh, research something that will get you a paper published in one of the economics journals. There are lots of really clever people spending all their energy on small questions. We've got some really big questions facing us at the moment. And so my advice would be, um, obviously students are really interested in those big issues. And so have the courage to pursue those big issues because it needs the younger generation to be working on. I think that's a beautiful answer. The same question, Ms. Sticks. If you if there's one thing you could say to students, especially in economics watching related topics we discussed, what would that be? Sure. I mean, I think I would pretty much, well, first of all, I agree with what has been said and come back to what I've said before about working with various different experts. You can't work in silos anymore in the world that we're in, not with this technology either. And you cannot come up with completely novel ideas, focusing only on your you know, narrow specific question that you're looking at. It's really important to broaden your horizon and to engage with all of the knowledge that is out there. And you know the knowledge from frankly various different fields. And I think that's, where fruitful connections and new ideas and also approaches to tackle specific problems can be drawn from. And that's really important. Yes, I fully agree. And I hope that this interview series also uh, can contribute, contribute to that. Professor Renda, for you, the same question as the very last closing questions. Do you have any last tips, recommendations, advice? Well, I think I can maybe relate uh, my my answer back to what has been said throughout the hour. Uh, I think to, to digital technology in particular. I think the emergence of digital technology and interconnected environments such as the internet has given economists and social scientists more generally a unique opportunity to study the evolution of an ecosystem that is a, a, could be seen at least at least initially could be seen as a standalone one. 
Still today, I think we have the possibility of studying the evolution of the digital economy as a, as a living system, if you wish, where uh, the, the needs, the external needs, the needs to perform certain functions and technological evolution determine uh, a uh, different morphology of that living system over time. We've seen some basic uh, foundational elements, which Diane has summarized in her first answer. We've seen the first evolution, which largely was due to the way in which the internet was structured. You know, code determines what's possible. With today, we are building from the central nervous system of the internet, the cloud, we are building the peripheral nervous system. The potential that we will have in using the internet of things for regulation, for public policy, for a social life, for, for uh, the economy is, uh, is enormous. And we need creative minds that are grounded in social science, including economics, that help us understand and anticipate what this will mean in terms of governance, regulation, and public policy. So be applied, be creative, be broad-minded, and uh, importantly, be inspired by uh, the, the public good, which I think is very important and sometimes difficult for an especially economists that have a very rich market uh, in front of them if they specialize in something else in the public good uh, to, to remain uh, really concentrated on what still economists can do that is great today uh, in terms of contribution to the evolution of our public policies and overall uh, um, the way in which we govern our economy and society. Thank you. I think it was a beautiful answer and a great closing statement. And I want to thank each of the panelists for taking the time today. And we hope to see the viewers again at the next episode. Thank you.